Hey guys, it's Corey from Lean Green Dad Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in today. 60 years. Can you imagine doing any one thing for 60 years? Well, our guest today is Dr. T. Colin Campbell, and he's been researching the effects of animal-based protein versus plant-based protein on the human body for over 60 years. I'm really excited to have you here. Today is episode 80 of Lean Green Dad Radio. Let's go. Hey everybody, welcome to Lean Green Dad Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to Lean Green Dad Radio. From sunny Orlando, Florida, this is Lean Green Dad Radio, the podcast that provides fuel for families. And now, here's your host, Corey Warren. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to the show. If it's your first time listening, then welcome. My name is Corey and I am a husband, a father of three, and a plant-based athlete. And each week I get to talk to some of the most exciting, wonderful, fabulous, and any other adjective you want to use to describe people in the world as far as plant-based nutrition, motivation, entertainment, and they're just wonderful people. My hope by getting to talk to some of these folks is that you will take away some gold nuggets of information that you can apply in your life to help keep your family going strong. Because look, I am a busy parent and I'm telling you, I need some extra motivation to stay fit, eat healthy, and really get the most out of life as a busy parent. Because again, that's what I am. That's what I do. That's my daily life. So let's go get some inspiration. But before we do that, I want to say hi to my little uh, co-host here. Izzy, what's going on, girl? Um, we're having a really good week. Uh, I just went to dance. We're having a recital soon. Um, I'm having salads. I'm having... Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm having some noodles. Doing pretty good. So guys, Izzy is my eight-year-old now. She was seven, Mm -hmm. but now she's big eight. And, uh, she's doing really well. Yeah, things are good. School's out for the summer. Woohoo! Summertime. So she's, uh, ready to have a blast and do all the summer camp thing and all that fun stuff. But... Um, today's guest, we're going to get right into it. Our, our guest today is amazing. He is uh, Dr. T. Colin Campbell. And really, if you haven't heard that name before, it's okay. But uh, if you Google him for two seconds, you will find uh, a ton of information. Uh, not only is he most widely recognized from the Forks Over Knives movie, but uh, so, so many other things. I'm going to give him a proper introduction in just a minute here. But um, I cannot tell you how honored I was to have him on the show uh, Izzy, you love eating plants, am I right? Yes, so much. Well, this this doctor that we talked to today, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, he has spent over 60 years researching the effects of animal protein on the body uh, versus plant protein. Wow. Yeah, so the research and the information that he has done has enabled us to make the decision on what the best way for our family to eat is, which is a plant-based diet. Well, I'm really happy that I did that because, well, that he did that because for some reason, vegan makes me feel better. Yeah, yeah. Vegan. And you'll see, we get into it, we talk about this, but the word vegan for him, he, he's not a huge fan of the word vegan. He likes the word whole food plant-based diet. So as you know, I use the word interchangeably, uh, vegan and whole food plant-based and plant-based. And uh, for me, I just want people to learn more about eating more fruits and veggies. So... 
Here we go. Without any further ado, it is episode 80 of Lean Green Dad Radio with Dr. T. Colin Campbell. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Lean Green Dad Radio. Today is a huge show, my friends. Today's guest is Dr. T. Colin Campbell. Now, you will, of course, recognize him from the Forks Over Knives movie that I talk about so many times in the show, among many other documentaries, speaking engagements, books, and an excellent TED Talk that you can find in the show notes of the show. Additionally, Dr. Campbell is best known for his work with the China Study, the most comprehensive study of health and nutrition ever conducted. His book bears the same name and was co-authored by one of his two sons, Dr. Thomas Campbell. And he's also written two other books, Low Carb Fraud and Whole, which was published in 2013, which is aimed at reshaping how we think about food and disease. And uh, Dr. Campbell is also the founder of the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies and the internationally recognized plant-based nutrition certificate offered in partnership with Cornell University and eCornell Online. He is also the hero of the plant-based world, at least that's what I'm calling him. Uh, We're honored to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Campbell. Thanks for being here on Lean Green Dad Radio. Thank you. That's quite an introduction. Well, you deserve it, sir. I mean, you know, 60 years of research and and work going into this, you know, I'm just, I I told you before the show, I'm a little starstruck, but uh, I'm I'm happy to get into talking about a few things here. And um, I, I wanted to start with a question that you might not be asked as frequently, which is, why did you choose to become a doctor? Why, why in the first place did you start this? Well, I was from a farm, actually. and It was about the furthest thing from my mind as I could imagine. And so when I went to Penn State, and I was the first one in my family to go to college, actually. Um, and when I went to Penn State, uh, there was the custom in those days to give the incoming freshmen a sort of a, a have to take a little survey as to what uh, they might be suited for for a career and of course for a, a concentration and I, I scored high in two things farming which wasn't very surprising because that's what I came from. <laughs> right. the other was medicine which surprised me and wow. uh, but it got me thinking and I, I didn't particularly want to be a physician to be honest about it because in those days our family physician was a guy in an old Model T that would come around uh, on the back roads and visit and all hours of the day, and he got paid with, you know, a dozen eggs or maybe ham at the best or something like that. Yes. I, I didn't see that in my future too much. But still, I, I liked the idea of medicine. So what I did, I, I got into pre-veterinary medicine at Penn State. Okay. I was admitted early to veterinary school uh, after my third year. I was a year into my veterinary school when I got an offer from uh, recruited in a sense uh, from a rather famous professor at Cornell University, you know, to come and do graduate work with him. So I dropped out of veterinary school after one year, uh, then got into graduate school. So, uh, and, and veterinary medicine was the sort of combining, if you will, the farm side, because uh, in those days it was all about big animals, far, large animals. Of course, yeah. And uh, it makes sense. So I, that's what I did, and, and one thing led to another, and eventually got my master's and my PhD at Cornell. Wonderful, which you are still teaching there today, right? 
well, I'm entitled to teach. When, when one is an emeritus, you can do still more or less the same things you want to do, or you can do something different. So I, I taught uh, for a little while after I took the position, but then I chose to concentrate on the book and lecturing elsewhere. Yeah, and traveling all over the country. I mean, you know, yeah. with the, the latest documentary, the uh, plant-based uh, nation. Oh, forgive me. Plant Pure Nation. Right. Um, which I have not yet seen, so I'm very excited to see that very soon. But um, I understand you just got done touring all over the country to promote that in the last year or so. Yeah, we did. We uh, took that film around, or my son did. My oldest son is the one who's the director. Mm-hmm. Using, That's Nelson, right? Yeah, and using the same producer and a screenwriter that uh, did Forks Over Knives. Yes. Uh, uh, and uh, Lee Fulkerson. So in any case, we did that. And, but then I do, you know, other kinds of travel, too. We're uh, about to go off to uh, Europe here shortly. Oh, my gosh. That'll be great. Done that Wonderful. A few times, yeah. Well, I, I wanted to start by chatting about, uh, you know, I, Sometimes I get a chance to go out and speak to uh, a group of people about plant-based living, a whole foods plant-based diet, and uh, my angle is to to talk to busy parents. You know, so many parents think that they're too busy to make healthy choices in the kitchen uh, as far as a plant-based diet. They don't know where to start. So my my job is to try to make it easier for them. And one of the ways that I always start off is by saying, you know, and, and a lot of us talk about disease this way i believe that we're born with uh, a predisposed you know whatever you want to call it imperfections in our dna and i i look at them as embers of a fire you know after a fire has calmed down and embers are there and that's the good embers where you like to roast marshmallows and stuff like that and i feel like from everything that i've read your information and tons of other information out there the the way to keep these embers from sparking into fires or disease is determined by how we live our lives and what we put in our bodies is so incredibly important would you say that the the way that i'm looking at that as far as the embers and the predispositions to certain different things and everybody's unique dna code is that accurate would you how do you feel about that very much so um, the uh, metaphor that I use sometimes is talking about planting seeds, let's say in uh, some fertile ground or, or to make a lawn, for example, and the seeds can lie there dormant and will do so for maybe 2,000 years. Uh, and they won't grow until they get some sunshine, some temperature, some sun, some water, some nutrients and so forth, and then they'll take off. And then as they go through the seasons, they'll appear to die. They don't really die. They retract and come back again next season. So that's sort of what cancer is, I see. Uh, and other diseases, we have the genes. Some genes we'd rather not have, <laughs> obviously. But uh, if we do the right thing, we don't give the water, fertilizing, and, uh, you know, the conditions that allow those genes to be expressed. Yeah, it's the same thing. You and I are talking about the same thing. Good stuff. Good stuff. Now, what what if a fire has already started? What if a, a seed has turned into a plant and, um, you know, someone finds out about a plant-based diet after they've been, you know, diagnosed with cancer? I mean, obviously, you know, Western medicine would say, okay, you've got two options, uh, chemo or chemo, right? And, you know, chemotherapy, uh, from what I understand, destroys every everything, just wipes out everything in the body. So... How, how 
how can a plant-based diet, especially with something like cancer, um, you know, breast cancer, prostate cancer, two of the top five killers in the in the United States, how can someone work to put out a fire once it has started? Is it is it a bit more complex once that happens? Is it a bit more difficult? It varies. It obviously depends on the disease. It depends on the stage of the disease to some extent. If the disease at that point in time has already destroyed tissue, you know, this so-called uh, fibrotic and so forth, then that's unlikely to reverse. But uh, most diseases don't get to that stage uh, until, you know, pretty close to the end. And as long as there's viable cells around, uh, my idea is, and we show this in our research, and uh, and I'm tempted to do something about it now, is that, uh, you know, these cells recover. They can recover, just like, you know, the, the season of ground, in a sense. You know, you can, they can go dormant they, for a while. They can come back. I mean, so what the, the conditions, the environment that got the seeds to grow in the first place or the cancer cells or such, that that environment, uh, if um, stays that way, it'll keep they'll keep on growing and until very late stages. And so, what I'm finding is that uh, the diseases can be reversed. Dr. Esselton, Rip's father, of course, very good friend of mine, and Dr. Ornish, they they did that with heart disease, and it's been done with type two diabetes. And now, and we put it in our book. Of course, we did it with cancer, you know, experimentally, and. Uh, not enough attention has been given to that in the case of humans. Right. There, there will be shortly, I think. Right. Um, yeah, disease is largely reversible unless it's already caused, you know, scar tissue kind of damage. Sure. Uh, stages, it, do you go by stages as far as cancer? Is there a, if it's a stage three or a four, then that's the tissue damage? What is the clinical kind of uh, level where the tissue damage has occurred? Well, it's not so much the tissue damage, uh, I think. It's going from state, well, stage one, there's certain histological features of that that establish it as, you know, having a probability of being cancer, if you will. Uh, stage two is a little more certainty. Stage three is when the, the uh, cancer begins to metastasize and invade other tissues. And so it goes. And so they're somewhat arbitrary, those stages. Uh, but uh, what is generally accepted by most people, especially oncologists, that if you get to stage three, you know, there's no way that you're going to reverse that cancer, for example. I don't agree. I'm just simply saying flat out they're wrong. And okay. uh, I'm out now busy organizing a proposal to show that's true. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to it. Um, I had someone very close to me just diagnosed with stage three. And uh, we're 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 hopeful that he's he's going to be all right, and I hope that he's taking the right steps. And uh, I hope he gets a chance to listen to the podcast as well, um, because I think that he needs to hear what you have to say. And hopefully, while he's receiving some of his treatment, he can uh, read one of your three books, uh, because you know they're they're wonderful. So um, now, what if? So, so what percentage of the population, or what percentage of folks, uh, could could get cancer anyway? Uh, you know, they they could live a perfect life. They could eat a plant based diet from birth. 
is it is it possible if everyone ate a plant-based diet from the time they were born that they would never develop cancer or is there a small percentage of folks that no matter what you do you're probably going to you know develop that cancer i have to say that quite frankly if everyone theoretically did exactly the right thing uh the chance of getting cancer is very close to zero and okay. one of the reasons i say that is because if one compares which i've done compares let's say um cancer rates for different countries uh, it's really pretty remarkable. Mm. Uh, the worse the diet, if I can generalize about that, it's almost mm -hmm. a straight line, line relationship uh, that goes right back to some countries to very high levels. And on, on the other end, some countries have almost no cancer. Mm. Now, you, you can even go further and argue that the, those who have very, very low rates of cancer, it means they just have very far fewer people probably doing the wrong thing. Sure. theory, you know, from that perspective, and also from the biochemical, which I won't get into here, uh, I think it's got to be very close to zero. And, you know, feel free to go into the biochemical if you'd like. Uh, no, nothing's off, uh, off topic here. I just, I want to, I want to share some of those things that people say, the, uh, the naysayers, you know, to this diet, or the folks that say, oh, uh, well, you know, at the, at the very, very basic and downright ignorant, the statement that I get is the, well, we're all going to die of something anyways, right? right? And so it's so sad that someone would think that way because, um, you know, while, while there might be certain things in your DNA that are stronger than others as far as disease, you want to give yourself the best choice or the best chance possible, you know, and do, do everything that you can do in order to make sure that your body has a, a super chance to thrive. We've got to give our bodies the best chance possible to fight. And the best way to do that is to eat a whole food, plant-based diet, right? Exactly. Along with uh, a few other things, obviously, staying active, getting sunshine, plenty of water, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's almost not possible to have a perfect situation in today's world, too, because of all the external uh, stimuli as well. I mean, we wake up and we do uh, a mouthwash rinse, and then we put product in our hair, and we rub oil or... Uh, you know, some other terrible liquid on our bodies to get moisturized skin. Uh, you know, there's just so many things out there. Uh, but I feel like food is is the most important because, in a sense, we're putting it inside of our body, right? And that's 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 fueling our entire existence. Right. The the food that we eat is really the the most fundamental substance that allows us for our tissues, for example, to regenerate. And gain health, for example, if they're in some difficulty. And so you know, there's, there's really very little, there's almost nothing else that can do it so remarkably well as food. Yep. We don't have it, we'll die for one thing. Right, right. That's true. So what's your daily regimen, doctor? I know that you just got done running four miles. <laughs> but uh, what, what's your, walk me through your day as far as breakfast. Do you have uh, several snacks throughout the day? Do you have a, a huge salad for lunch like Rip? Uh, do, you, do you eat Rip's big bowl when you start your day out? <laughs> well, I, I, I have, uh, man, most of us in this business who are really into it. We, it's just kind of strange. We eat something that is very similar. We, a lot of us have oatmeal. Mm -hmm. So that's me. Great. Uh, oatmeal or sometimes other cereals, uh, the granola kind of thing, uh, mm -hmm. with fruit. And 
And that's it. I mean, we have lots of fruit that we gather during the summertime, maybe freeze it for the winter, but even use that. Now, obviously thawed by the time we get around to putting on syrup. But anyway, that's one thing. Uh, secondly, for lunchtime, yes, the salad is a big thing. I, I actually crave a salad. If I can't have a salad, you know, often, I'm talking about a big salad too, um, I feel it. And so yeah. then in the evening, my wife, who's been fantastic with her cooking for, it turns out, throughout this entire journey for me, it's hers too. And she has been fantastic in creating uh, the recipes and menus and stuff like a lot of variety, but I, th I think she's a fantastic cook myself. And well, There you go. That's amazing. So, yeah, it's great to have a, a great cook in there. Our daughter uh, ha has some of recipes. Our daughter, Leanne, has the China Study Cookbook. And our daughter-in-law has also another cookbook. They're both doing really well. Now called the Plant Purination Cookbook. Yeah, so. I'll make sure to put those in the show notes so people can find them. Uh, Plant Pure Nation Cookbook. Yeah, we'll make sure to get that in the show notes. Um, okay, so you have your breakfast and then you've got your lunch, uh, big salad. What What is the dinner? Do you do something warm, something homey, makes you feel nice and you know, yeah. com some comfort food. What do you do? Well, it's, it's almost, I mean, it's quite common kinds of food, you know, obviously vegetables, uh, and it is warm. Yes. Uh, we cook food and, uh, it's obviously some kind of starchy, uh, vegetable potatoes, yams, you know, different, uh, rice, sometimes pasta, whole grain pasta, you know, a starch base, if you will, uh, a whole variety of different kinds of vegetables. And, especially greens we emphasize greens because they're so loaded with the antioxidants and and uh yeah and my wife also we might have some dessert too either fruit or she might actually make uh, sometimes uh, cookies or that sort of thing but remarkably she knew, uses no oil in the cookies amazing and so she uses dried fruit oftentimes in the in the in the sugar is down to next to nothing except for the dried fruit. So she has measures of things to put together. It's very tasty. Fabulous. And we just did a birthday party for uh, one of my friend's daughters. And they made cupcakes that were completely whole food based. And they used uh, beets for the red uh, strawberry frosting on top of the cupcakes that they made. And it, the kids had no idea, but they told me it was just bright red, wonderful, and uh, just there's so many unique ways that you can do it. So That's right. I love that. I love that. Absolutely. Um, how long does it take for someone to have a change in craving? You know, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. I, I crave carrot juice and vegetable juice, and, you know, uh, I do a lot of juicing of, you know, celery and kale and apples and carrots, all of that type of stuff and if I don't have my juice every I mean I try to do every day but you know realistically as a busy parent it's maybe every other day maybe three days a week but how long does it take for the palate to change for someone who's starting at the very beginning maybe a busy parent that's that's stopping over at fast food because they don't know any better and they're marketed to with 5,000 messages a day you know how long does it take for someone like them for their palate to change where they say okay I'm not craving those things that are bad for me anymore. I'm not craving saturated fat. I'm not craving processed sugar. Well, uh, you touched on something. Basically, craving, as you probably know, is uh, in another way is uh, is sort of a addiction. 
it's root addiction basically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, there's some science around what i'm about to say uh, but a lot of what i tend to say too is just common experience and i others know it as well as i do who do this and that is that uh for fat you know to to eliminate the craving for fat this added oil for example uh, my the information we have, and also the information I just personally observe, is like uh, a month, maybe, maybe two or three. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, during the course of getting off that craving, uh, you got to be pretty strict. You know, a lot of people, you know, kind of want to do it gradually, and yeah, they'll get there eventually. But if they're, if let's say in theory, it's going to take somebody two months to get rid of the craving. If they cheat a little bit along the way, then it's not going to be two months. Right. You know, and just the way it is. And it's the same. The best uh, example of that is smoking. Mm. If we're going to get rid of smoking, just cutting it down a little bit at a time and saying, okay, I'll, I'll just cut it down to one, two cigarettes a day or something silly like that. Then we already know there's pretty good science on that. Mm -hmm. People uh, return. I've I've read a a quote I think it was by Dr. Joel Furman about you know um, extreme for extreme change to happen uh, with a with a disease extreme dietary changes must occur and you know I, it, it's tough it's it's a tough thing for busy parents but it's something that you have to commit to and oftentimes I find that. It takes a significant event. It takes an, an extreme event, you know, the the first heart attack or the first angina, uh, in order to make a change like that. And uh, what we're talking about is hopefully never getting to that point, never letting your body get to that point, um, because with heart disease, oftentimes the first warning is a heart attack, and that could take your life. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. I your use of the word extreme is interesting. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, some people like to describe what we do as being extreme. I do not think it's extreme. Uh, of course it's extreme if they're accustomed to the really high fat, high sugar nonsense stuff they're eating, and, and that's what they crave. And then all of a sudden, they you know, a clean diet like this. Yeah, for them, it's it's all relative. It sounds like extreme, but one can turn around and argue, too, that those who want to continue to do it the wrong way and then, uh, you know, have their chest split open, you know, to do some work on them, that's pretty extreme. I agree. And, uh, I, I, so, I don't know. I, yeah. The, the I agree. Extreme is used quite a bit by our critics. Mm -hmm. Talking mm -hmm. about low-fat, whole-fruit, plant-based diet. That's nonsensical. Right. And one of the things they always say is, oh, you can't get everything you need from a plant-based diet. But from my experience, that's completely false in the sense that uh, the only thing that a plant-based diet might not have is, is B12. And that's because we overwash our vegetables because last time I checked, B12 came from the ground and it is a bacteria. Is that correct? That's right. Bacteria growing either in the gut of ruminants, for example, ruminant animals, uh, to some extent, we can make our own too, but the story is it's too far down our GI tract to take advantage of what might be there. Uh, I'm not totally convinced of that, but the science on that, uh, the, the practical information on that has, got ahead of, has gotten ahead of the science. What I mean to say, if we have a B12 deficiency, for example, there's two kinds of disease problems that might occur. 
And uh, sorry, I've got these bones here going crazy. That's okay. You just have to... Okay, so there's two kinds of um, conditions that might occur. One is called paresthesis, the tingling in the fingers and toes and so forth. That's the more common one. The other is an anemia that might occur. And so if you look at the research on this, which I have, and I haven't seen anybody yet answer this question, the, the, uh, pr the number of people who get the B12 deficiency anemia condition is as great in the carnivores as it is amongst the plant, plant eaters. Wow. So there's something else here. Well, there's huh. something else in this case is what we call intrinsic factor. It's a uh, material protein produced in the stomach and is required for the absorption of B12. And I can easily imagine, and this is pretty well known, is that people who suffer gastric problems, maybe chronic illnesses, that kind, then uh, they might not produce the, B, the intrinsic factor. Therefore, they end up with a B12 deficiency. And that has nothing to do with vegetarianism. Hmm. So it's, it's that. So when we talk about this, we're going to have to segregate out that. And we haven't done it very well yet. Although I agree what you just said, incidentally, that people are only eating plant-based materials and scrub and wash and stuff like that. They will have lower B12 levels. Yes, definitely. Do you recommend a, a, a supplementation of that, a yeah, sublingual I, type of pill? I, I've been reluctant to recommend anything. Um, sure. I, I do that because uh, partly because my wife says so. <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, we, we don't, you know, it's it's very, very, very small amount. Right. Um, can we talk a bit about um, the word vegan versus whole food plant-based? Uh, I've, I've gotten away from the use of the word vegan because the word vegan uh you know oreos are vegan dr right. campbell and those those are junk food uh and i feel like there's so many you know saturated fats uh and uh refined carbs that fall under the vegan label um now the animal rights part i i completely understand you know in my experience people go go uh plant-based for one of three reasons whether it be you know a health uh, a health initiative. It might be a uh, global uh, carbon footprint or an animal rights part of it. But um, for me, it's very easy to be a junk food vegan. And can you can you talk about refined carbs and and why they're so bad? Yeah. Well, first on the vegan question, I totally share your view. In fact, uh, all of my work over the years, and it will be sixty years this August when I started my research career. By the way. Amazing. But uh, all, all of that work over the years, I never heard of the word vegetarian, to be honest about it, until uh, maybe 20, 25 years ago. Uh, I didn't hear the word vegan until even you know, more recently, mm -hmm. um, maybe 20 years ago, 50, 20 years ago. And uh, it had nothing to do with what I was doing. In fact, I'd like to tell a little story. We had a laboratory, and of course, doing a lot of experimentation. On the campus at Cornell, some of the vegetarians at the time demonstrated against what I was doing in the laboratory. So I, I was on the other side of the fence through much of my career, and I was only led by the information. So the vegan practice, most vegans, I, and it's, it's, I very much appreciate the, the vegans for making the choices they do. Uh, I, I fully support you know, that point of view. There's no question about that. But... Um, the problem is if they don't take seriously the science, 
and they tend not to. They don't take the science much more serious than anyone else. And so the average fat content of vegans, for example, is 30% fat. Mm. That's really kind of ridiculous. And, also, and we're not talking about fat from avocados and well, nuts no, no, and I'm seeds. Not talking about no. the, I'm yeah. not necessarily talking about the whole food. I'm talking about a lot of it's coming from the added fat. Right. And it's the wrong kind. It's actually oil and it's the omega-6s. And mm. so that is pro-inflammatory. So they've really compromised their intent health-wise by using that added oil and fat. Um, vegetarians uh, also have a problem in that 90% of them are still using dairy and still have a fairly high fat content. One, the study that I know best, the best one is 33% fat. So the vegetarians and vegans, I don't use those words. You don't even find the word uh, vegan in, in the China study, not once. And uh, you know, even though I appreciate the argument for that, on the other hand, you know, for those ideological reasons, that, that, but that's not how, how it got here. Right. So, Talk to me about refined carbs and oh, the impact they have on your, on your body, the negative effect. Well, the refined carbs, yes, definitely, they, they can be a problem. Uh, but not quite as bad as uh, you know as the the uh, our, our critics will say. They certainly we we don't need refined carbs, and by that of course we we mean you know the simple sugars, table sugar and stuff like that. Put recipes or the or the refined uh, flours. In, in a sense, that's all refined carbs essentially, and they, yeah, they could be mischief and a, and a bit of a problem, especially when they make up a lot of the diet because they don't have those carbs don't have. The refined stuff, they don't have uh, the good the good nutrients to come along with it. Uh, and so when we're, when we're occupying so much of our caloric needs with refined carbs and or with oil, neither one of which have all the other good nutrients, then what we're doing, we're displacing the, you know, the consumption of the foods that really matter. Hmm. So that's, that probably that's one of the biggest effects of the ref refined carb or added oil argument, in my view. It's the displacement of the foods we ought to be eating that, that uh, really adds up. And uh, so, the, but then on the other hand, it's, it's, kind of a, it's been kind of an insidious journey watching over the last 30, 40 years, this whole argument about refined carbs coming to the forefront, first started by Dr. Atkins, Robert Atkins. And I can yes. tell you, the people who got into that movement and really thought they had an argument uh, they were more interested in destroying the kind of stuff that I was talking about, and of course, Dr. Essence and so forth. That's what their interest, that was their motivation. Because when, and so they talked about, they didn't always distinguish between refined carbs and natural carbs. They just said low carb, low carb. Right. You know, hamburgers without a bun, for example. Right. You know, that kind of nonsense. And so what, what they, a low carb diet means a very high protein, high fat diet. And that's what they justify their argument on. Well, we know, I mean, we have evidence that's irrefutable, irrefutable, that diets that are higher and higher in protein, animal protein mostly, or um, fat, especially added oil, they have higher rates of disease. There is no argument about that. They should stop trying to make an argument about it. Right. What they do is they, they, they also, let me add one more thing. Mm -hmm. They based much of their argument in recent times on the idea that we tried the low-fat experiment. You know, we were told many years ago, supposedly, that we should go on a low-fat diet. And they, we, they said we tried that experiment. 
we, 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 we did not. That's a that's an absolute hundred percent lie. Uh, one of the most recent books that just came out, unfortunately, graduate of Cornell is Mark Hyman, who's actually argued that he makes that argument. He says we were at forty three percent fat at one point. We went down to thirty three, and nothing happened. What he was talking about, quite frankly, uh, one of the major reports he was talking about, what I was a co-author of it. Mm. So he, he can't tell me what we did. <laughs> and <laughs> he also was, a, unfortunately, a student at Cornell. He took my class, my biochemistry class, actually, you know, wow. 30 years ago, went in another direction. Right, right. So the low-carb thing has been a bit of a thorn in our side some, to some extent. But um, I wouldn't be so concerned about it, except that so many people believe it apparently has some value. Well, and right next to carbs, you've got uh, protein, you know, That's and of right. course, your, your, your study of the malnourished kids in the Philippines and what you learned from that, you know, uh, I think you know, you've got uh, Garth Davis's book, Proteinaholic, and, you know, so many other things. I think it's a perfect title because we've become obsessed, even still today. I mean, 60 years of research, and, and we're still today obsessed with how much protein we're getting. And uh, can can you answer the question, how much protein do we actually need? And do we even need to worry about it? We don't even need to worry about it. Am I right? Absolutely. Uh, protein, by the way, that is the center of my 60-year research career. Because when I did my doctoral dissertation at Cornell, it was focused on the idea that the more protein we, that we, it was the idea that the more the protein, the better. Mm. It was the same thing that I went to the Philippines with with my colleague at the time. It was This is in the 60s. And at that time, we were attempting to make sure the malnourished children got enough protein. So I, I know the story about the protein really well. Like the, <laughs> That's my life almost. Uh, you know, having been in that sort of community. But, of course, we found out that that wasn't really true. But to come back to how much protein we need, it's been shown for many, many years that in terms of percent of total calories, and that's the way I like to think of it best, it's the best descriptor, in terms of the, the percent of protein we need, we only need about 4, 5, 6% to match the amount of protein that we lose in the form of nitrogen in the urine and the feces, for example. We only need about four or five, six percent. That was determined formally in 1943. And then uh, at that time, that was an experiment, obviously, and it's been repeated. Uh, what the researchers thought appropriately is that, you know, you have a number uh, that four or five, six percent or so, you know, an experiment. And then in order to make a recommendation to the public, they added a couple standard deviations to that number. And a couple more adjustments, and then they came. That came, brought them up to the so-called recommended dietary allowance, hmm. which is around eight to ten percent. The recommended dietary allowance has been around for seventy-five years. No one's really ever argued that. You know, amongst the the really good researchers, they haven't argued about that. That's a good RDA. It still stands today. Unfortunately, what has happened in the general public, who don't really know any of this history, know about that kind of thing. They tend to assume that the RDA is the minimum amount we need. It's not. Th that, in fact, that's the optimum level. The mm. minimum amount is four or five percent. Well, okay. So let's go and we let's talk about the RDA. The RDA ten eight ten percent. It turns out we can easily get that 
on a whole food plant-based diet, even eating low low protein foods like potatoes. Right. You know, we we get enough so plants have all the protein we need, period. And any arguments to the contrary are simply people really don't know what they're talking about. That's not the, that's not what the science shows. Right. Well, when you look at the the percentages can, can you break that and if you don't feel comfortable breaking it down by body weight but can you break it down like on average per pound of body weight I, I've heard everywhere from 0.5 to 0.8 for you know uh, bodybuilders per pound of body weight is that accurate or well, not so much? I, I don't I, I never have gotten accustomed to using pounds mm-hmm. <laughs> you know we talk about kilograms and sure. grams and stuff like that but you know, so I can give you that. It's the number that has been recommended around the world in uh, research communities is eight tenths of a gram per kilogram. Okay. And a kilogram is two point two pounds, right? Mm-hmm. So more or less. And so right. um, you just take the eight tenths and right work work it out. But the the grams per day, what that translates into eight tenths of a gram per kilogram. Okay. Let's take a man, for example, weighing 70 kilograms. 70 kilograms times 8 tenths is 56. So, you know, an adult man, 70 kilograms, which works out about 145 pounds. A 145-pound man is going to have an RDA of about 56. Okay? And uh, for a woman, the standard weight that we use in research is is 48 I mean, I'm 60 kilograms. Man is 70, woman is 60. So right. the 60 kilograms also times 0.8 is 48 grams a day. So a woman, average woman, 48 grams a day, average man, 56 grams a day. That's the RDA. Mm-hmm. In reality, what we actually consume on average, oh, and incidentally, that number, that level right there is equivalent to about 8 to 10% of total calories. Wow. So that those wow. numbers sort of work out. Um, and but unfortunately, we're consuming on average the protein content of our diet around seventeen to eighteen percent, not ten percent. Oof. You know, we're we're seventy eighty percent on this on average, by the way. Right. Which more or less uh, half the population is consuming more than that. Right. And you know, well, then we get up to twenty, twenty five, thirty percent. Uh, you put a professional athlete that everybody loves on the front of a whey protein canister, it's going to sell. And that's kind of right. you know what's happening. Uh, I, I interviewed a professional athlete. I will not say any names. Professional athlete, football player. Uh, I, was, I was recruited out there to cover a sports drink. I ended up not covering the sports drink because I had 40 grams of added sugar, and they were promoting it to kids. But the pro athlete that they had, the first question I asked him was – uh, you know, you care a lot about the defensive coordinator and you care a lot about the offense and what you're planning. How much do you care about what you put in your body? And, you know, this is a kid just out of college, you know, just a bright future ahead of him as far as his, you know, football career in the NFL. And he said, you know what? Not a whole lot. I don't really uh, focus on what I put in my body. And uh, I rely on my, you know, my nutritionist and, and trainers for that. And uh, I knew right there after the first question that my interview was over, I couldn't use any of the footage. I couldn't use anything because in the NFL, the diets are, are pretty backwards. Uh, you know, lots of lots of meat. Uh, of course, you got someone like David Carter, the 300-pound vegan that he calls himself that, you know, played in the NFL on a vegan diet and still is eating a plant-based diet. 
but um yeah it's 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 backwards sometimes and i think we have to take personal responsibility for what we put in our bodies we have to look at the research look at the science look at the papers that you've published and and read your books to to inform ourselves to to make the best decision possible and I guess that's more of a, a comment than a question. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty amazed at the increasing number of professional athletes, actually, who have decided to eat this way. Mm. Uh, and they, I hear the, the common theme is that they their endurance has improved. I'm sure you know that as a runner, mm-hmm. uh, especially uh, people on in track and field and runners. Um, they're, they're kind of leading the pack in a way among amongst athletes. Right. But, uh, you know, in better endurance and better coordination. Well, you know it better than I do, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, one of the, there's two people told me this years ago. And I, I, I guess it's rather true. I think it's true. Although I understand it hasn't been published. Namely, uh, Dave Scott, a name I'm sure yes. you know. Oh, yeah, the winningest Iron Man of all times. Yeah, this is in 1990s. This is like 20-some years ago. I, I had him in my class at Cornell. And uh, he came and told how, at that time, he was a consultant to the NFL. So he's in and around the training rooms and stuff like that. And he said the average age of death for NFL linemen was 56 years. Mm. And he, he knew what sort of I knew, and he, he told that to my class. And so then a little few years later, I got to know Tony Gonzalez. You know who uh, I'm sure you know him, and yep. and uh, that was all written up. And Tony called me up in the beginning, and he told me he did he didn't know what Dave Scott told me, not to my knowledge. And he said the average age of death of penalty line, line was 57 years. So Ugh. wherever uh, Tony got his information from, or Dave got their his information, they both came up with about the same number. Right. And and I remember one of them. Well, both of them actually. They said the the trainers in the NFL didn't want to acknowledge that, so they never went back. Nobody ever went back and got the the numbers. Or if somebody does have the numbers, it's not being talked about. You know what the average age of death is, right? So just I'm mm. saying that because two people who should know told me <laughs> that's what it is. For sure, um, I'm gonna let you go soon because I know you're a busy guy. But I have one more question for you. And it's probably the most important thing that we talked about in this entire podcast, and that is. As a father, what is the one thing that you want your kids to be left with, the, your legacy as a father? What is the thing that you want them to say about you when you're gone? And I ask that to everyone. Um, well, I think it wouldn't be just me that I'm interested in what what they say about me, but also to say about my wife. She's had a lot to do with this, obviously, so... It's about the two of us together. And uh, it's just that uh, we were, we just tried hard to be responsible parents. And that, you know, to leave them an opportunity to choose the career they want and to do what they want. And most of all, uh, to be respectful of other people. To me, uh, morality is, is a big, big deal. Ethics and morality. Honesty. I know that's what my father, when I think back, that that's the, he only had a couple years of education, but he was anxious that we got an education. And so 
uh, he was also had a big reputation in the rural county from where I was raised. This is in the South. Uh, he had a big reputation as being an extraordinarily honest man. And he really made sure that, uh, you know, he said, whatever you do in the future, remember, never forget to tell the truth. Always tell the truth. Huh. So, you know, honesty to me, ethics, morality, those are big issues. So if our well, kids remember that, then I'm happy. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, sir, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, it's been a true honor to to be connected and uh, to just have you share a little bit of information with us. And, uh, of course, I'll be happy to put your books on the show notes, and uh, I hope people will go out, watch Forks Over Knives if you haven't yet. Make sure to watch all of the different documentaries that you're involved in uh, and, and just get out there. Of course, you know, you've got Plant Pure Nation, uh, the most recent one, and uh, I know there's good things to come in the future. So thank you again so much for taking the time. Can I make one more uh, suggestion on the book? That's Absolutely. The Campbell Plan. Now it's called The Campbell Solution of My Son. Okay. He was the cause of the China study with me. He's now the clinical director of a new program called Nutrition and Medicine at a major medical school. Oh, great. So he's, uh, he got, I, I want his stuff because he, he was the writer behind my book, our book, uh, to a great extent. He's a fantastic writer and he really knows this information um, from the scientific and medical point of view as well as anyone I know. Hey guys, what's up? It's Corey back in the studio. Thank you so much for making it through another episode of Lean Green Dad Radio. But hey, don't let your experience end here. Visit us online at leangreendad.com where you can find all of our social media followings. We've got a Facebook, a Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram, and even a YouTube channel. So go check us out. And another cool thing on the website, if you feel so inclined, I did a three-part grocery shopping series at Whole Foods. And uh, Whole Foods is a wonderful friend of the show. And uh, this is a a free grocery guide that uh, has me walking through Whole Foods to talk about three different areas that we shop at. Uh, Fresh foods, uh, fruits and veggies, frozen fruits, and also we've got uh, cereal, grains, and uh, dairy, non-dairy milk. So uh, check those out. Uh, I have some ice cream recommendations and some treats in there and also some other great things. So check it all out, leangreendad.com. Thank you again. You're amazing. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen to the show. This is Corey from Lean Green Dad saying until next time, keep going that extra mile for your family. See you soon, guys. Bye.